And so that's, I think that's where the seed got planted uh, for the idea of in kind was that I just knew that if people love interacting with their coworkers as much as I do, and if they like the idea that a, a workplace can be kinder, the more deliberate you are about being kind, uh, th th then I need to write the book. I need to, I need to put that into a nutshell. Um, I mean, all these young programmers that I'm bringing through the academy right now, mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to teach them how can you exist in a workspace, and this is their first job. And so I really want them to feel comfortable. I want them to feel like they can speak truth. Mm -hmm. They can be authentically who they are. Um, but there are also really nice ways of interacting with each other. There are kind ways. You don't have to love everybody in your workplace, but you can still bestow kindness on pretty much everyone. It's, yeah. it's like your secret, you know, superpower. You can pull out kindness at any moment and you can <laughs> spend it off to anybody and make their day better. And so, so I, that's, that was the inspiration for writing this book. Welcome to Wise and Wine, a play on the phrase, rise and shine. Now look here, folks, I've had five jobs in the last two years, and that shit just ain't normal. Or is it? No, no, it's not. So I'm turning to diverse people who inspire me both professionally and personally with careers that didn't exactly start at point A and end at point B. We'll explore how their families, their cultures, and their communities impacted their career decisions, as well as the exact moment they decided to pursue their passions, even if that passion wasn't a direct path to a pension or a 401k. Hopefully, I'll come away knowing how they became the badass, the confident, the strategic people that I admire. And if I don't come out of this project a little wiser, well, at least I'll enjoy the boozy wine ride. There is nice, and then there's kind. Scuba Steve and I have been traveling internationally for over a year at this point. Our last stop was in Medellin, Colombia. And I thought about our experience on the public transportation system as a way to differentiate people who are nice to us versus people who are kind to us. And we were taking a cable car from one part of Medellin to another, and people who are nice to us let us know, like, oh, hey, you need to stand in this line, or they made seat for us in the cable car. Like, those people were inherently nice. People that were kind was the family who, once we were in the cable car with them, engaged with us in English when they didn't have to because Spanish is our native language. But they engaged with us in English. They told us about some restaurants. We absolutely had to see some sites we had to see when we were in town that were a little bit more local and not as touristy. They gave us their telephone number and said, hey, if you want to come over for an authentic dinner, here's our number. Come have dinner with us. Like all of that is beyond kind. And so there are people in my life that I, that are certainly nice, but when I think about the people that are just kind, it's the people that go above and beyond and make that extra step. And I think that in the workplace, we don't always see that from our, our coworkers. We see people that we work with that are super nice, but do we see the people that are inherently kind? And when you work with kind people, how does that change your workplace? 
And that's a topic that my guest explores in his book, In Kind. Um, Michael Nace talks about how kindness is really essential to the workplace, that it's essential to the functioning and how it makes productivity and all of the things that we do at work better when we're kind to each other. And that kindness is an action. I know Michael because at a previous job where I was a contractor, when I came in new, one of my colleagues was working with Michael and she was really gracious about training me on processes and procedures. But the one area that I felt a little hesitation on was that I was going to be working with Michael instead of her. I was transitioning. She was transitioning off of his team, his project, and I was transitioning onto it. And it was very much a, you need to give it up. You've had about enough. He belongs to me. The boy is mine moment where she did not want to give him up. And eventually she, she conceded and realized, okay, his project made more sense with the other projects that I had. And I got to work directly with Michael and I cannot thank her enough or at least I see why she was holding so tightly onto him. Michael is inherently kind and it's something that it's not a it's not something he's put on. It's it's who he is and you can hear it in his voice and you can hear it how it talks and you can hear it in his career path and the different things that he's chosen to do have all centered around kindness. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I do. So without further ado, I present my guest, Michael Neese. Michael, welcome to Wise and Wine. What are you drinking today? Jim Johnson. It's so good to see you. Um, I This early in the morning, I'm usually just drinking some water. Uh, sometimes I add a little bit of fruit to it to give it some flavor. But uh, yeah, just do a straight water today. How about you? Um, well, I should. I have my water because it sounds like a healthy thing to do, but I also have a headache. So I am trying to kick it with some caffeine. So I'm, I'm going between water and uh, Coca-Cola right now. Uh, all right. Well, I hope it gives you the buzz you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we launch into your career, I have to say you have an incredible speaking voice. So how much of your cadence, your patterns, your inflections are just nature? It's just who you are versus those that are nurtured, maybe things that you worked on and cultivated. That's yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I love listening to your podcast as well, but um yeah, I've worked in the planetarium industry for a very long time. And what you find is that, you know, it's a big room with a half dome. And during the day, you can magically turn down the lights and make it look like it's nighttime. Uh, well, when you do that, suddenly you're in a room with a whole bunch of people that you need to get points across to. And all you have really is your voice and a pointer. And so, you know, just over the years, I've, I've found that, you know, certain cadence, certain rhythms will get a, a, a bigger laugh. You know, if you if you pause at the right time, you can you can get people to respond to you in certain ways. Um, so, yeah, I think I think an awful lot of it is just, you know, trial and error and uh, and and really enjoying those interactions with people uh, a lot. Perfect. Yeah, I, I listened to myself back on podcast. I'm like, oh, I ramble a whole lot. <laughs> so I should probably, I should probably work on that. So I'm very curious when people, you know, I think like President Obama to me is the most 
I could listen to him read me ingredients off of a box. Like, but there's something about the way he talks and his cadence and he pauses. And I'm just like, did he just, did he work on that? Or was he born that way? It's so interesting. I mean, his time is <laughs> perfect though. Yeah. He's good. He's a little, a little nerd, but he's good. All right. So my career podcast is really to talk to people about how they've ended up in careers that they've ended up. And especially if you're, maybe your career deviated from where you expected it to be. So can you tell me about your career path and how it's been influenced by your family and maybe the community that you grew up in? Gosh, um, I, I think we all kind of do the same thing. It's not a guarantee, but I think most of us get some coaching from our parents, from our friends, from our teachers uh, who say things like, um, oh, don't focus on that. You'll never make any money doing that. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and so so that, that we get some good advice and some trimming advice that maybe kind of steers us in, in odd directions. Um, and then it's what's available, right? And so your first few jobs, you might end up doing things that you just never expected. I mean, I know that your career path took you into a couple of different places you just never expected that you're going to be in. And, and, and my situation was very much the same. Like, you know, my first job that I was ever in, I was working at Duke university between summers as a high school student in a free electron laser lab. And like, why, why would they hire a high school student to do that? I mean, other than, you know, it's obvious that I'm a big nerd, but, um, you know, uh, they they wanted me to solder things into control boards uh, for the electron laser. So I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But I didn't really know what I was doing. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think an awful lot of the evolution of my, you know, hopping from one career to another career, you know, getting from one industry to another has been um, it, it, my, my curiosity is one thing. Um, also, the skills that you polish up doing something uh, are suddenly appealing to maybe something that you hadn't really anticipated before. So, for example, I, I started off working in planetariums and, you know, it's this big space with a half dome that's above your head where you turn out the lights and you point with your laser pointer. And uh, so I, I learned a lot of, a lot of educational skills. Well, before you knew it, I was working in, you know, uh, in different industries where they wanted me to be a trainer. They wanted me to be a teacher and they wanted me to be a leader in some way because I can stand in front of people and not fall apart. You know, right. public speaking is one of those things that a lot of people, you know, they, they really don't like. Uh, but you put me in a room with 5,000 people and give me a five minute head start on a topic. I'm ready. I'm, I can stand in and I can just immediately do that. So, so an awful lot of my career hopping has been just, you know, the skills that I polished that were appealing to people and then also taking some of that family advice. So, you know, here I am. <laughs> so what did your kind of, and I don't know if your, my family was like that, where my dad was like, you need to have a, a career where you're going to get a pension and, and, you know, why would you get into this? You're not going to have a career. When I got, when I started in higher education, he's like, that makes sense. Colleges aren't going anywhere. Cool. Stay with that. And then when I switched, he was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, there's no money in that. And I'm like, well, you know, as I, as I learn more about what I'm doing and I realize, oh, I've got skills in this and I got better at it. Yeah. There turned out to be money in it. So when you're were growing up, was there kind of a, a thing that everybody in your town did or was your, were your parents like, Hey, we're in this industry, follow us this way. Yeah. And my parents were really good about trying to let me determine my own path to some extent. Um, so they were, 
<laughs> you know, you know, right? Um, because they they have a certain version of events that happen to them, and so they try to give you some advice along those lines. Um, and maybe it's you can't always see what other things are out there. So you know, both my parents are PhD scientists, oh, wow. uh, both with chemistry degrees uh, okay. from Duke University, and so I, I guess I just grew up thinking science means you get to chase your curiosity and it's really fun and you get to discover and explore. I get to be Mr. Spock on Star Trek. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> I guess that was, that was kind of what I had in the back of my mind and gosh, that would have been a horrible career path for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, I do have a, an undergraduate degree in physics, but um, you know, that's helped me be a physics teacher I mean, I have a lot more in my uh, career DNA of being a teacher than I do of being a scientist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea that I can inspire other people and get them excited about some of the basics of a, you know, uh, of science, of, you know, physics, astronomy, of chemistry, something like that. Or these days I teach computer programmers how to do programming at a pharma uh, company. Um, yeah, I, I, teaching is way better for me. So, uh, yeah. All right, so walk me through your career from beginning to end, from when you worked in the lab in high school to where you are now. Oh my gosh, we'll we'll, we'll do the quick uh, skip <laughs> and hop version so it doesn't take too long. Um, yeah, so I did a couple of different summers in different labs. First one was in a physics lab at Duke. Uh, one was in a chemistry lab right before college uh, at UNC. Um, and then at UNC, um, I did a couple of things in the summers where I was uh, working over at Duke and teaching uh, Duke University TIP. Um, it's the talent identification program. And so I was a you know, teaching assistant in that. Um, but, uh, but I was sitting in an astronomy class at UNC and somebody said, hey, the planetarium that's here on campus is really neat and they're hiring students. Maybe you should look into that. And I was like, ah, oh, pshaw, you know, that doesn't sound <laughs> interesting and you know secretly in the back of my head I was like wow that sounds great <laughs> so I I ended up having this lifelong love affair with museums and science institutions and uh and planetariums in particular because I I did I I interviewed that next week and before you knew it I was working at the planetarium giving very simple star shows uh pre-recorded shows um and then uh eventually giving some of the star shows um yeah, got through my college degree, eventually uh, moved up north and started working in a different planetarium. Um, and then eventually I I figured out that, you know, museums and planetariums, you don't make a ton of money. And, uh, yeah, so, so as much as I really loved it, I wanted to find something where I could actually have a family and support, you know, support a family. And so I got into corporate technical training. I did that for a couple of years the dot-com uh, bubble burst uh, in 2000. And so um, I, I briefly tried out a, a university degree program for astronomy, um, but eventually decided that just that, that wasn't really where I wanted to be either, you know, so I was able to shut that door pretty firmly behind me. Um, and, uh, and then eventually I found myself in a classroom uh, teaching high school students physics and chemistry and astronomy. Um, and then uh, I was dropping off one of my kids at the daycare center and somebody said, you know, we've talked a couple of times. You strike me as somebody who might be a good computer programmer. You <laughs> should come over to PPD and you should interview with us. 
And yeah, there's not a lot of money in teaching. I think that's not a well-known fact either. (laughs) (laughs) So so, um, I immediately got a a huge boost in my pay by just becoming a pharmaceutical programmer. And, And that's the industry where I've been pretty much ever since is taking clinical trials data, you know, data when they're trying to figure out, is a drug going to work? Is it going to be harmful? Is it going to be helpful? Um, Taking those data and then pumping them through this SaaS programming language. Um, So I've I've done that for a bunch of years. And just in the last couple of years, um, I created an academy where we teach new programmers how to do exactly that stuff. Because you know, I, I stumbled into the industry and had to fill in all my Swiss cheese knowledge. <laughs> I, I hate the idea that other people have to go through that. And so I pitched the idea and and everybody really liked it. So, so yeah, now we're, we're training young programmers how to do that. Yeah. So that's, and, in, in a nutshell, that's, that's my career. <laughs> and I, and I, and that's, uh, for people that that may not know, this is where you and I met was when you were working on the academy, and and essentially what I think you're doing is like you said, you stumbled across it, and this is an, an industry I think that people just oh I'm gonna go to college for this, and so you're kind of mapping out a new career path for students, which is great, but I think beyond just mapping out the entryway, you've also mapped out, okay, well, here's the next step too. So they don't have to fumble and guess. So I think that's a really great um, plan that you had and to come up with. But I think for us, the reason why you stood out to me and why I enjoyed working with you so much is because you were so passionate about making sure that we were diversifying that space and making sure that we were actively and intentionally recruiting students of color to be to be in the industry and so what where did that come from for you I mean I don't I know zero about North Carolina other than Duke is there but in terms of having diversity and inclusion being a part of your career and being a part of something that you want to be a part of where did that come from for you I I guess where that came from from me and please don't laugh too hard um, but, uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Uh, and when I was a little kid and I was watching Star Trek, the original series, you know, it was, it was coming out and, you know, all these reruns. Um, it was the idea that you could have an alien on the spaceship and you could have a black woman in a position of power where people really listened to her and talked to her and wanted to know her opinions on things. Uh, there was an Asian American man, um, and there was a Russian. I mean, they, all of these different people came together, and it, the the beauty in all of it was that anybody was honored as long as they had curiosity, mm-hmm. as long as they had good morals and and a good compass, as long as they tried to speak truth. Um, and while I was watching Star Trek and, you know, all of the other you know things that, that a kid did in, you know, suburban Washington, D.C. Uh, growing up, I was also growing up in a household where mom was a Ph.D. scientist mm-hmm. and she would sit down with me and she'd be working and grading papers and she'd be doing research and she'd be talking about bacteriophage viruses and uh, all these really cool things that she was working on. And so I guess I I, I got it in my head that just because I was born into this container that looks white and male and and all of that, that didn't have to be the case. I could have been born into any container and why should one container matter and and be more important or more honored than some other? 
Um, so I was, you know, raised in a household where boys and girls are all able to do whatever it is that they want to do. I was being nurtured by seeing a future that I really want to see where we all exist and we are all honored and we all matter. Yeah. And so, so for me, it's just been since I was like three or four or five years old, um, I, I got it in my head that, uh, you know, we're, we're all born into the containers we're born into and why does it matter? And so, um, so when you and I met, uh, you know, I was trying to recruit uh, people of color, trying to, re you know, recruit people from the Latinx community to become these new programmers uh, at our pharma company. Um, and it was just really, it, it's a very exciting work because there's a lot of talent. Yes. There's tons of talent. Yep. And if you, if you're deliberate about how you look for that talent and you plump up your candidate pool, you have a lot of choices now and you have a lot of variety. And uh, so to, to me, this is just really exciting to see that um, I get to work with people uh, that are bright and young and idealistic and they want to build that same future that I want to build. I love that. Oh, I miss working with you. You were so fun. Um, well, so you said you mentioned that you majored in physics, but you're pretty well read in areas of like business and psychology and human behavior and communications and DEI. So if you had a time machine and it could take you back to Michael in high school, would you advise him to pursue the same degree? And if not, what would you advise him to do? Oh gosh, the what ifs, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I would probably tell that younger version of myself to be truer to the things that I already knew. Um, I already knew that it was really fun getting up in front of a group of people um, and getting them excited about something. Um, I, I would definitely have said, uh, study human motivation. You really, really, really care about other people and how they are doing and are they supported? You care about that. To figure out how to make that happen. Um, so I absolutely would have delved into a lot more, uh, you know, human motivation and uh, positive psychology and those sorts of things. Um, DEI, I think in the way that it's described today, I don't know that it existed in that same form, you know, when I was, you know, being raised. Uh, but certainly I, I would have encouraged the younger version of myself to go make a lot more friends mm. that don't have the same background, who don't look like me, who don't necessarily talk like me and and get to know them, understand what, you know, who else is out there. Um, because part of the joy of life is is having that variety. I mean, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the same things that drive you drive me. And so, I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why you and I get along so well is that, you know, every time I get a chance to talk to you, I feel like I learn a ton. And so, yeah, that's, I, I, so I would have definitely given my, my younger self a lot of advice to explore a lot of different uh, options. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And well, and of course, part of the other reason why I connected to you is because I, and I wanna talk to you because, you know, when I was a kid, I have these very fond memories of, you know, my dad reading the newspaper and when he was done with the newspaper, he would hand it to me. And then I would spend hours like making my own newspaper. So I sat down and I laid it out. So it had a tagline. I even wrote the price. I wrote the sports articles. I wrote the editorials. I gave myself a byline on everything. I drew all of the photos. Like I would do this for hours and why nobody thought, hey, maybe she wants to be a writer 
drives me bananas. <laughs> so you have written two books. You wrote Tony Janzo, astronaut trainer, the man who made the stars shine. And now you're on a tour for your book in kind about the kindness in the workplace. So what inspired you with all of the other motivations that you had, all the things that you're interested in, what inspired you to write a book? And then what steps did you take to elevate that passion to a concrete accomplishment? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So uh, writing is also in my DNA. It's something that I really enjoy. Um, I've been writing since uh, around 2000. Um, I penned a, a planetarium script and it got a full production. It was, it was really fun to see it up on the big dome. It was really neat, but um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the Tony book, the book about the astronaut trainer. Um, I, yeah, I, that was just a story of that's very, near and dear to my heart. I worked at Moorhead Planetarium in Chapel Hill, uh, you know, coming through college. And like, there's this huge secret that's kind of unspoken that 62 astronauts came through that facility and got trained on celestial navigation, including Alan Shepard, John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, like all the names that you would know, they all came through Moorhead Planetarium for 16 years. And so for, for me, it was more just that that was a labor of love. That was, here's this great story that people need to know. And why not write a children's book about it for an institution that mostly serves children? I mean, it does lots and lots of field trips. People come there and learn about the stars in the third grade or in the seventh grade. And uh, so so that's that's really what drove that was I was I was just fascinated by the story and I couldn't believe nobody had ever told it <laughs> in, in that format or, you know, in, in a larger context. Um, yeah, the book in kind of, uh, so I, I'm glad that you are excited about it as well. Um, it, it's actually going to come out a little bit later. Um, so it's, it's one that I'm still in the process of collecting just little bits and pieces to, to finish it off. But uh, it's about, it's about two thirds of the way done at this point. Um, he, I love working with people. I, I've worked in all these different industries. And one of the best things about any of them is I get to show up and work with people who are trying to do the same kind of stuff I'm trying to do. And so I, I love that. I mean, work, work can become your second family, right? I mean, if you meet the great people that I have met, I mean, you make lifelong friendships through this. I mean, you and I became friends through work, right? So so the idea that we all suddenly had to go through this shutdown for COVID and, you know, people are hurting. People are feeling very, very disconnected and alone. We all long for a sense of belonging. Yeah. And how can you feel like you belong if you're shut in your house for just weeks and months on end? And so that's, I think that's where the seed got planted uh, for the idea of in kind was that I just knew that if people love interacting with their coworkers as much as I do, and if they like the idea that a, a workplace can be kinder, the more deliberate you are about being kind, uh, th th then I need to write the book. I need to, I need to put that into a nutshell. Um, I mean, all these young programmers that I'm bringing through the academy right now, mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to teach them how can you exist in a workspace, and this is their first job, 
And so I really want them to feel comfortable. I want them to feel like they can speak truth. Mm -hmm. They can be authentically who they are. Um, but they're also really nice ways of interacting with each other. They're kind ways. You don't have to love everybody in your workplace, but you can still bestow kindness on pretty much everyone. It's, yeah. it's like your secret, you know, superpower. You can pull out kindness at any moment and you can <laughs> spend it off to anybody and make their day better. And so, so I, that's, that was the inspiration for writing this book. Okay. And I wish that somebody, and I think that's a, I don't know if I just missed it. There was a class and I just missed it, but I don't think anybody told me what I was supposed to do at my first job. Like I, I was told, like, I've got these set of skills now that I've learned through my degree and I go to work and I work really hard. And there were times where I just sat at my desk and I didn't, you know, I ate lunch by myself, but I just worked through my lunch and my boyfriend would call me in the office and I'm like, I can't talk. I'm working like, ah, and, and finally somebody grabbed me and they were like, you know, you don't have to do this, right? Like you can talk to other people, you can speak up in meetings, you can do this. And I was like, oh, okay. But it took me a few months before somebody tapped me on the shoulder and went, no, no, like, this is not what work is life. And so I think there is a benefit now. I feel like colleges or career centers are getting a little bit better at helping students prepare for that. Um, but I think that's a key for anybody in their first careers to have somebody that can like guide you through the, through not only the work technical piece of your job, but the like, Hey, this, the social piece of, of being in a workplace and what that piece looks like. So no, I love that you're, you're taking the initiative to do that. And you're building these new skills, especially in, in students that are coming from a technical background that may not be working and developing that in their in their curriculum sure well and and computer programmers in particular uh <laughs> are not necessarily known for you know their social savvy uh, i know that that is a stereotype and i am a computer programmer and i i don't at all fit that stereotype but um but yeah it's it's so easy to fall into the uh, i'm just going to do the thing you know they hired me to do this thing i'm just going to do the thing and for some people that's okay but I, I think for the vast majority of us, I mean, you're going to be spending 40, maybe 50 or 60 hours a week doing something. If you can't be your authentic self during that time, what kind of what, what kind of mental health issues are you going to encounter later? Because you're bottling up who you truly are and you're trying to save that for your, you know, the rest of your life for, you know, all your personal people. Um, but what you find is the more you bottle it up, the more you lose sleep, the more you worry, the more you you overanalyze every conversation that has happened at work. And you see a person get a promotion and you wonder how they did that. I, I think you're absolutely right. Most of us just go into the workforce and, and we don't really understand. And so part of InKind, I address how do you find a really good mentor? That's that's another big piece in all of this is that, I mean, gosh, it, you know, if it weren't for the different mentors that I've met in different careers, oh man, I would be so stuck. I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand much of anything. I'd be guessing and a lot of those guesses probably wouldn't be right. So, so I have an inclination that you are intentional about words and instead of calling your book in nice, you chose the word in kind. So what to you distinguishes being nice from being kind? So nice can be very inauthentic. Mm. 
it can be authentic, but it can also be very inauthentic. Um, if you've ever, you know, encountered somebody that you know is just feeding you sweet words um, at a customer service desk, and you could tell they were just not having a good day, and they did not want to be dealing with you. Um, I think that's that kind of comes across as nice. I think kindness is more a sense of trying to intuit what the other person really needs in that moment and then trying to help feed that need if you can. Uh, you know, so so kindness to me is, you know, you're having a certain kind of day, I'm having a certain kind of day, we have an interaction. Uh, we're at a coffee shop, we're at, at you know, a pharma company, we're, wherever we are. Um, I should try to be thinking about the fact that I, I don't necessarily know how you're doing. And so, I mean, being very authentic is is asking, you know, hey, how are you? How, how are things going? And waiting for the answer, not just, and, and then saying, no, but how are you really? Because when I hear the word fine, but I can tell you're not fine, I, I should care. I should actually take an extra minute out of my day, say, no, 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 really, Jen, how, how are you? I care. So, so I, so that to me, that's, that's the distinction is that nice is like slapping on a smile, whether you feel it or not. Kindness is living a truth and being authentic and trying to hear the other person um, while also dispensing some kindness, you know, mm. some, some sweetness. So you've worked in a variety of industries from tech to education to planetarium science centers. When it comes to kindness, have you seen any industry get it right? Why or why not? And what limits some industries generally from integrating kindness into the workplace? Oh my gosh. Um, the places that get it right are usually the ones where the employees are on, on the, you know, surveys, they're saying that they feel listened to and they feel heard and they, they love working for their managers and they love the core mission of that company. And so, you know, Ben and Jerry's has long time been, you know, one of those companies that people look at and say, they have three different missions. And one of those missions is the social mission. And, right, um, and, and they, they focus very heavily on the employees. They think about what's going to make the, you know, the workplace really good for them. So, so probably Ben and Jerry's is, is one of those that, that people would have heard of. Um, I, I really love my current workplace, um, Gilead Sciences. Uh, I'm not just giving it lip service because they're, you know, giving me a paycheck. Um, it, it is a majority minority company. And so you have, you know, more women than men. You have more, quote unquote, minority groups than you do uh, white people. And so the, the, the voices naturally come out. Um, is everything perfect? I, I think you could probably get a very different answer from different people at Gilead. Uh, but I think the vast majority of the stories that you would get would be really positive ones. Um, and so, yeah, the, 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 the idea of having kindness be instilled into the company, I think it's always a deliberate thing. You asked, why do some people not institute it? Why, why is it why is it not a big deal at certain companies? And I think it's it's usually not out of some sort of malice. It it, it could be out of malice, but I, I usually don't think that that's the case. I think it's usually we're in a firefight. We've got a sprint. We've got deadlines. We have all these deliverables, and people just get into a rhythm of 
I'm sorry, I don't really have time to talk to you about your sick kid. Let's move on to the topic and get things done. And that's not the kind of workforce that I think anybody wants to be in. I don't think people feel heard or seen if that's the case. If somebody says that there are microaggressions that are going on in the office and they get ignored, well, there's a lot of work to be done at that company and it may not be a salvageable situation. I mean, uh, you know, in, in Kind is this book that's thinking about how do you infuse kindness into a workplace. Sometimes I think the kindest thing you can do for yourself is to have an escape plan from certain companies, right? Um, because you, you just may not be able to salvage the situation that you were in. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, I enjoyed my time at Gilead. And I think had they been able to support me working internationally, I would still be there. That's the only reason I left is because we were moving internationally and it wasn't feasible for me to work there. But I, I really did enjoy my time there. So and, shout and out I to my team. Yeah. <laughs> and I miss you every single day. I'm going to say that out loud. You, you were such an easy person to work with and you were always just so fabulous at what you do. Well, thank you. Well, I think it's the kindness and you're an easy person to work with. Anywho. We are, we're, we're going to be here forever. Um, I forgot where I was going. Oh, so have you seen the pandemic impact kindness in the workplace in a significant way? And part of the reason I ask is because now um, the big thing that I'm seeing from a place of frustration is companies asking their employees to come back to the office and seeing a lot of pushback on that. So I don't know if that, you know, I think there was a lot of support from companies when, employees had to work from home. Um, but now with asking them to come back, how, how does that kind of impact that feeling of warmth and, and cared for feeling that employers did care for me, but now that they don't. So that's one way that I see it. What other ways do you see the pandemic impacting kindness in the workplace in a significant way? Nice being influenced by the pandemic, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, I think a lot of people were caught flat-footed uh, by the pandemic. I mean, it's just, it's obvious, like, oh my gosh, it's suddenly here, and now what do we do? Um, and so I think it's during that time when a lot of the, the fracture lines that already existed within society really came into stark relief. It was really, really obvious. Um, and so it was also one of those places where you found the blurring of lines. I mean, if you're if you're working from home, who's to say when you started and who's to say when you stopped? People are answering emails at midnight and, you know, at 7 a.m. Before they start their breakfast, they go check their emails. And yeah, so I, I think a lot of the employers really do value the 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 people that they've hired, they understand that they have value in terms of their skills and their knowledge and 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 so forth. But I think it was a lot easier for employers to suddenly see humans as humans as well. I think that that was suddenly in stark relief because when you are a big executive and you're used to having your admin sitting right outside your office, and now suddenly your admin is on Zoom and your admin may be struggling with a, an aging parent in the home or with a, with, with a spouse who has to do something, you know, it, suddenly we all see each other a little bit more as human beings. It, you, you bring up the idea that we all have to start coming back to the office. And I think that that is, in, in a lot of cases, I think that that is a sincere invitation by companies to say, we really want to see you again. 
we really want to have that kind of interaction that we used to have. Um, you know, the, in, in, in particular instances, you can solve a lot more in a 15 minute face to face conversation than you can through a 20 or 25 piece, you know, email chain. I mean, those can just, you know, those can suck the life out of you. Right. So, so I, I, I feel like employers, you know, it, it varies obviously through the landscape. I mean, some employers are, are doing layoffs and they're saying goodbye to people through email. I, I just, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I, it, the message that is being sent is you are replaceable and we do not really know who you are or care that much about you. That's, that is the message that is being received. And that's clearly the message that I don't think they intended, but one that they weren't careful about. And so they, they, they need to rethink that. They need to be more mindful uh, about, you know, what are their next steps? So, so I, I don't know if that answered the, the question perfectly. It did. But. No, it did. I think in, I, I gave you two questions, so that's something I need to work on, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think the, the bringing employees back to work, I, I think there's, there's two sides to it. It's the, yes, some of you really struggle not having interaction with a person and not having that chance to over coffee, exchange a quick idea or, or things like that. But I think there's also some other people that have really, especially because the pandemic went on for so long, shaped their lives around this, the new normal and are not, and found out the new normal works out way better. Like I'm more efficient when I can stagger my day. I'm more efficient if I can start at 7am take a longer lunch and then maybe pick up in the afternoon. And so, yeah, I don't think there's a blanket answer for any employer to, to satisfy everybody, but I, I think there something has to be done because some people are very unhappy. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, when it comes to DEI, I have worked in organizations who have said A, but did B. And that was most evident to me after the George Floyd murder, when Black staff like me were not only expected to come to work and operate in a business as usual situation, but then we were also tasked with, excuse me, to create and launch employee resource groups. So now in a time when political and social events can and do impact employers personally, how can, or excuse me, impact employees personally, how can employers be more kind? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's horrible that we have such inequities in our society where the murder of a human being, um, it, it's, it's not acknowledged as such. And where you have uh, employees who are hurting because they know that that could have been their friend or that could have been them, right? Um, I mean, one of my really good friends uh, from the last team that I, I used to run uh, was talking to me about how it was scary to go out on the trails where he would usually walk or jog um, just because he he kept having these thoughts. Um, so yeah, it's... I mean, I think the best thing that any employer can do or any teammate can do is listen. I mean, have have the conversations, listen, um, do a lot of research. Um, I mean, I'm I, I'm sitting in a position of great privilege. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a white cisgender male um, in a society that values that greatly. 
and has structured things so that that is valued. Um, and so I have to get outside of myself. I have to do the research. I have to watch the movies and read the books and listen to the podcasts and look at the TED Talks um, and, and try to educate myself, try to become the anti-racist that I hope uh, is available you know, in any teammate, in any good ally. Um, but I think the other big thing is just to try to listen. Um, the other thing is give people space and understand that there are going to be emotions that are centered on on a variety of things. Um, I mean, I have a fan family member who is uh, gender neutral, and uh, you know, I have several family members who are gay. And <sighs> if there's anything that I have learned, it's that I I have to learn a lot more. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, so I would, I would say there are emotions that are going to be circulating and, and listening to what those are, hearing that, being there for people, I, I think is, I think it's a privilege to be allowed to do it. You know, I mean, for, for us to be able to hear each other in our moments where we feel most vulnerable and give the kindness, give the love, give the support um, is there a greater thing that we can do with our time? I, I, I don't think there's an answer to that. There's anything other than yes. I mean, I think this this is the way to spend your time, right? I, th I wonder too, when I, when I think about why more managers aren't like you, um, and I, I suspect it's because it's a time issue. Like it takes time out of your day to check in on your employees and it takes time out of your day to create opportunities for the team to bond. So when I think about work-life balance, how do you balance the general skills, the general expectations for your job, balance that with, with kind of taking your care of your staff, balance that with some of your outside endeavors like writing a book, but then you also have a family. So how do you balance all of these pieces of who you are so that uh, everyone is served, including you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Isn't that a <laughs> question? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's like juggling. Um, I think the key to, uh, anybody who actually juggles, you know, props, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, juggling clubs or it's juggling balls or something like that. Uh, the key is that you have to keep your attention everywhere simultaneously, but your actions have to take place at the level of what is the next thing that has to be cared for, or you will drop things. Um, and we're all humans and, uh, you know, uh, we drop things. It's, it's going to happen. So th think about it this way. Um, the, the manager who feels like the work needs to get done sees the work slowing down because there are people who are having a hard time with the pandemic or having a hard time with huge news items like George Floyd being murdered, right? Um, having, having a hard time because they have relatives who are in the Ukraine or relatives who are in Russia and, and they worry about these people. And so you see the workload slow down and a manager who just doesn't have all of the skill sets, who doesn't have all of the right training, who doesn't know what tools to reach for, thinks, well, I'll just crack the whip. I'll, I'll just say, you, you've got to work harder. You've got to work smarter, more efficiently. You've got to be fast. Um, 
Whereas I, I think if you stop and really think about it for a second, if you have a two-year-old who's throwing a tantrum in the store, that you have to make that the priority. You have to listen because that two-year-old is having big emotions. Well, aren't we as you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 year olds in the workplace, don't we also have big emotions? So if, if you don't sit, stop and if you don't really address what's going on and give it some space, give it the chance for healing, it gets bottled up. And there's resentment if you try to skip past it and say, let's just get the work done. That's not life. That's not life. The work, I mean, the only true deadline in life is death. That's it. Everything else is pretty pretty negotiable. <laughs> if you release the item, uh, you know, by the exact date that you said, I mean, how... I mean, there are some industries where that is not true. You have a, you know, if you're a surgeon and you have a you know, open heart surgery going on, you got to act quickly, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I, I, I get that there are moments where you have to say, we, we got to suck it up and we got to get through the next two hours. But so many instances in life are just not like that. And so I, I think managers who, who don't engage in these practices of giving in the space and, and talking about healing and getting to that next thing, they, they probably just don't know what tools to reach for. Um, and, and I'm hoping that my book actually does help with some of those things. Right. And that leads to my next question. How, when the book comes out and it is a huge bestseller and people in every industry are using it, what do you want to see the outcome be? Like, how do you hope the book in kind is implemented or used in the workplace? Oh, well, the, the, the dream, which you just described, is that the message is powerful enough in the book that people are, are just hungry for it, that they're desperate to hear that message. And so that's, that's my hope, is that people, they, they want to know how to be kind in the face of unkindness, they want to have their workplace that hasn't really set up a culture to say, you know, we could do that. We, we can set up just a couple of very simple rules to talk about excellence and inclusion and accountability. We, we can do this. We can make this happen. So, so my hope is that people will use in-kind uh, as a roadmap for whatever it is that they're suffering from the most in their current work situation. And the best part about all of this is, can you think of a situation where kindness doesn't help? <laughs> I mean, you could be at the coffee store opening the door for somebody who has their arms full and they're grateful to you. And it took you four seconds to do that one action. It really didn't take much. Um, so yeah, that's, that is my hope is that, uh, in kind is that, that roadmap, that guide, it gives people the tools, the strategies, the tips, the tricks. Um, I, I reveal some very shame filled moments when I did not get it right in the workplace in the, in the hope that people will be able to sidestep those pitfalls and get straight into the tips and tricks on how to get it right, right from the beginning. So that's, that's my hope. All right. Well, my last question is, if you were to look 10 years into the future, what would you like to see that would make you think, yeah, I've been pretty successful? 
Uh, 10 years in the future, if people are, are begging me to write the next book or the next couple of books, um, and if the feedback that I'm getting on the book tells me that it, it saved people a lot of heartache and, and problems um, when they were, you know, faced with somebody who was really unkind to them at their workspace. Um, so that's, you know, t 10 years from now, I would certainly love to be hearing from people. And, and if they have stories, if they have things that they can educate me on and make me a little bit smarter about this, um, you know, then then those are things that can go into the revised edition or into that next book. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the other things that I'm I'm hopeful about is that the uh, speaker series uh, that I am kicking off as well as the book uh, encourages people to bring me as a human being who can ask, you know, answer the questions that you ask in real time. And so it's it's not so static as a book. It's a lot more uh, interactive. So so hopefully that's a booming business within 10 years. <laughs> well, Michael Neese, I, I believe in giving people flowers while they're alive and not waiting until they pass. So I do have to sincerely thank you. Although uh, we didn't work together very long, I think kindness is something that I felt from you in spades, like immediately, like it didn't have to grow. Like you just led with kindness, which was really great. And it was easy for me to come into a place where I was new. And then shortly after I started, my, my dad passed away and you were one of the people that really constantly checked up on me and was like, are you okay? How are you doing? Is there anything I can do? And when we think about to your point about people having big emotions in the workplace. I was having big emotions <laughs> in the workplace at that time. And so I really sincerely, and I don't think it was a, any kind of master plan. It's just who you are, but it did make a difference for me. Um, so thank you for being you. Thank you for putting you out in the world, for sharing you through the book in kind. I'm excited to see what you do next with, with all of this. Well, I'm uh, honored that you asked me to be on the podcast. And, uh, you know, at some point, we should definitely have a follow-up conversation. Uh, I know that you have some big changes that are happening in your life very soon. And uh, I would love to to make sure that you're doing well. But uh, but also, you know, it, is, is there anything that your, uh, that your listeners uh, could benefit from? I, you know, find that out over the next few months and we'll have a follow-up conversation. I, I, I would love to do that. Let's do it. So in the meantime, where can people find you? What's the approximate release date of the book? Like where can anybody who's interested in, in learning more about you or the book in kind, where should, where should we direct them? Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. January 15th is the date that we decided uh, when I went on my trip up to New York, I met with my creative team and we set out all the milestones. So we we're confident that uh, January 15th is going to be the day. Um, in the meantime, uh, look for me at michaelgneese.com. The last name is spelled weird just to mess everybody up. It's N double E C E, kind of like the opposite of nephew, but a couple <laughs> of, you know, too, too many E's, I guess. Uh, um, and then I'm on LinkedIn just all the time. I'm always there trying to pick up new wisdom from, from uh, a lot of colleagues that I know in real life, but also just through LinkedIn. So, so look for me on LinkedIn. Um, there's another Michael Neese who's out there. Uh, I am Michael G. Neese, 
in case that matters. <laughs> it does. I was doing research on you and I was like, who's this guy? That's what Michael looks like. And I think it's Michael R. Nice and he's like a recruiter or something. But I was like, there's two right. of you? How's that happening? <laughs> right. No, no. He's he, he's He's got a thriving business as well. And he's an amazing man. Uh, I am uh, uh, honored to have the same name as a couple of <laughs> All right, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure seeing you again. Jen Johnson, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of the Wise and Wine podcast. Don't forget, episodes come out every Tuesday wherever you find podcasts. Remember to rate, subscribe, and review. You can also find information about my guests on my Instagram page at Wise and Wine Podcast or send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns at wiseandwine at gmail.com. So I hope that our time today helps you pass the time on your commute, pass the time on the treadmill, or pass the time while you're working on those TPS reports. And hopefully you left this day a little wiser. Have a great day. Bye-bye.